The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to Politics Theory Other. In Sunday's Italian elections, the far-right Fratelli d'Italia, the Brothers of Italy led by Giorgia Maloney, emerged as the largest single party in the Italian parliament, achieving the best result ever for a party that is directly descended from the neo-fascist MSI, the Italian social movement. I spoke with historian David Broder about the election results, the history of the Brothers and the MSI, and why the far-left achieved such a poor result with just over 1% of the vote. Today's episode is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great left-wing titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Cannibal Capitalism by Nancy Fraser. Capital is currently cannibalising every sphere of life, guzzling wealth from nature and racialized populations, sucking up our ability to care for each other and gutting the practice of politics. In Cannibal Capitalism, The legendary radical philosopher Nancy Fraser helps us envision the resistance we need to end the feeding frenzy. What we need, she argues, is a wide-ranging socialist movement that can recognise the rapaciousness of capital and starve it to death. Cannibal capitalism, how our system is devouring democracy, care and the planet, and what we can do about it by Nancy Fraser, is out now from Verso Books and part of their Verso Book Club reading. And now to today's interview. David Broder is Jacobin's Europe editor and a historian of French and Italian communism. He's the author of First They Took Rome, How the Populist Right Conquered Italy, and his forthcoming book is Mussolini's Grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's episode, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. You can get access to extended versions of this and other PTO episodes at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. So we're talking a few days after Fratelli d'Italia, the far-right Brothers of Italy party, led by Giorgia Maloney, uh, succeeded in becoming the largest bloc in the Italian parliament, with Maloney now due to become prime minister of a coalition government comprised of the brothers, Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia, and the Lega, led by Matteo Salvini, as well as some smaller right-wing and centre-right parties. Before we talk about Maloney and, and Fratelli d'Italia, Could you break down the results and explain what the composition of the parliament will be following these elections? Really, the main focus in the results are two. One of them is the uh, decline of the vote for the Five Star Movement, which was the biggest party in 2018. Uh, It had got 32%, but fell to 15%, and a very big share. Uh, In fact, most of the voters who left it abstained. Uh, so that really changed the overall political map because while in 2018 there were kind of three blocks, uh, the so-called centre-left, so-called centre-right and five-star, this time that uh, sort of third uh, leg, as if you like, uh, five-star kind of shrank 
and so the others uh, became relatively larger. The right wing was the biggest force and got 44% of the vote overall. Uh, but because of the electoral system uh, and because the, the blocks were, were sort of more uneven, it massively increased its number of seats and will have a large uh, majority. It didn't get the two-thirds majority of seats that it might have, which would have allowed it to change, or, you know, was speculated, which would have allowed it to uh, change the constitution without even having referendums. But it's a big majority for Maloney. Uh, and a very important factor as well is that within, and really the main key to the rise of Hotelli d'Italia, is that the right-wing bloc although the total number of votes was the same, there was a very severe shift within that coalition. So Fratelli d'Italia actually got most of the votes among all right-wing voters uh, and got 26% up from uh, 4% in 2018. More than half of people who voted for Matteo Salvini's Lega in 2018, this time they voted for Fratelli d'Italia. And actually that, that's like really the, the main uh, reason for her success is that she's taken over the leadership of the right-wing camp. Mm. And that result for the Lega was even worse than the polling had suggested prior to the election, right? Yeah, that's right. So in 2019, when, when Salvini was uh, interior minister, and listeners may remember, he, he, he made these very big performative, but not only performative, clashes with NGOs and and announcing that migrant rescue boats wouldn't be allowed into Italy, uh, illegally keeping people on board a ship, uh, for which reason he faces a a trial, uh, which is still ongoing for illegal uh, imprisonment. So, you know, at that point, so summer 2019, he was polling in the high 30% in the European election in 2019. Uh, The Lega got 34%. Basically, he tried to force the snap election back then, didn't work. A series of missteps since then. Uh, the fact he was in Mario Draghi's so-called national unity government as well meant kind of accelerated a trend for Lega voters to move towards the opposition party, which was Fratelli d'Italia. And in the end, yes, you're you're right because um, you know maybe the polls suggested Lega would be like you know 13, 14, 15 percent, and they actually got uh, only nine percent. Then the other the other block, well, in 2018, what was called the centre-left uh, included people like former Prime Minister uh, Matteo Renzi, who was a, a Democrat Prime Minister in the mid-2010s. So, you know, since then, he's quit, and his uh, finance minister and him, they ran a centrist coalition called Terzo Polo, a third poll. Uh, so the joke there is it's called the kind of third poll. The idea is a third force between centre-left and centre-right. But it was actually the sixth uh, largest. Uh, so they got like 7%. And then there was the Democrats, who are kind of liberal Europeanist party, and some of their allies, either a bit more leftish and green or a bit more liberal, they added up to about uh, one quarter of the electorate. But really the picture is that because the right-wing bloc stood as a coalition, Whereas all of those other forces I mentioned, you know, Five Star, the Democrats, the third poll, they were all standing separately. And the way the electoral system works, uh, a little bit like the way that the first-past-the-post system uh, exists in in Britain, means that the uh, right wing got a quite large majority with 44% of the vote, even though, you know, their vote didn't increase overall. But uh, also it should be said that the turnout was much lower than last time because the the amount of five-star uh, voters who moved to abstaining was, was very considerable. Hmm. When it comes to explaining why the brothers of Italy and George Maloney did so well, 
Is it as simple as the fact that they had not joined Mario Draghi's national unity government in February 2021, that they had been outside of that and so were able, therefore, to pose as an insurgent force, which was no longer possible for the Lega? Well, that's certainly a very big factor because the advantage it gave Milani was that precisely because she was the only major opposition force outside the government, uh, that also actually kind of helped her to uh, make her opposition to Draghi less uh, harsh because she occupied like the whole opposition space. She could kind of attack the parties within the government from sometimes very contradictory angles while also like holding on to the, the core vote as like basically the main force in the, the right-wing coalition. There's a, a, a phrase which Maloney herself uses to describe it, which I think sums up her politics well, which is she said, well, the Lega and Forza Italia, uh, Berlusconi's party, they might join the, the government together with centre-left parties and technocrats, mm. but she is monogamous in her coalitions. She'll only ally with right-wing parties. And this also allowed a certain kind of performance of you know, demanding that Italians should be let, allowed to vote to choose their government because, of course, the previous parliament had three very different coalitions since the last general election. So, so that's part of her appeal. I think part of the dynamic, though, is that there's something of a kind of um, almost could be said a kind of optical illusion in terms of the suddenness of the rise of the party in the sense that already in the 1990s and 2000s, Alianza Nazionale, which was an earlier incarnation of this political tradition, with many differences, but really like the the main post-fascist party in the 1990s and 2000s, uh, even then in several elections scored as high as 15% of the vote. So actually kind of part of what happened is that some of those votes also went to the Lega in the Salvini period when you uh, so in the period of Salvini's rise, uh, he, he really rallied the right-wing voter, uh, electorate behind himself. And then a lot of that then moved back to Fratelli d'Italia. So in the election, Fratelli d'Italia scored higher than a post-fascist party ever has before. But, I mean, a lot of those votes are coming from within the, it, within the right. And I think, you know, it, it's, not, it's not like a sudden breakthrough from a previously uh, extreme and maligned party. You know, they're, they're a party who... Their leaders were, although they're from the neo-fascist tradition of the post-war MSI, mm. uh, they're people who were in Berlusconi's governments in the 90s and 2000s. It's just that over time, uh, the kind of cultural and uh, hegemony within this coalition has moved even further right and become even more favourable to the, the post-fascist uh, forces. As you say, Silvio Berlusconi helped to, to normalise the far right in Italian politics. Do they today, you know, have any sort of compunction or, or do they feel at all uncomfortable about the fact of now enabling a government that is led by the Brothers of Italy with, as you say, its uh, neo-fascist lineage? Uh, really, no. I mean, yep. in, in um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, there, there, there are some uh, figures who quit Berlusconi's party in response to the the downfall of the uh, draggy government, you know, people who were in Forza Italia who would probably rather be in that kind of, yeah, a government together with, you know, other like neoliberal and centrist forces and, you know, close to draggy and so on. But also though, even like people from the Christian democratic tradition, people who are from Berlusconi's party have like directly associated themselves with Fratelli d'Italia and yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing is that the sort of overcoming 
of the perceived sort of what in Italy is called the anti-fascist uh, prejudice is quite long gone on the on the right. I mean, if we think, of, for example, of the fact that even in the governments of the 90s and 2000s, it's not like Berlusconi was like the moderate one who was imposing anti-fascist codes on his allies, not at all. I mean, he, he allowed the MSI into his uh, coalition even before it changed its name, before it repudiated uh, the racial laws. Obviously, it's also the case that Berlusconi's governments included such figures as Marcello Dell'Utri, who was basically his uh, link man with, with the world of Cosa Nostra. So, of course, not to say that mafia and post-fascists are, are, are an identical phenomenon, not at all. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the mm. compunction, the, the kind of general not, idea... Not a man with many moral qualms. Yeah, I think, I think the idea of, like, being stained by your allies is, like, a lot weaker in Italian political culture nowadays than, than say, in Britain. And also, of course, let's think, you know, if we think specifically about kind of public memory culture and reference to the fascist past, well, Berlusconi uh, himself refused to celebrate the uh, 25th of April anniversary of the resistance until 2009 was the first time he, he did so. So he'd already been in frontline politics and prime minister many times uh, for 15 years. And yeah, I mean, I, I think like there are forces on the centre right, so-called, of Italian politics who would worry about certain tendencies within the post-fascist tradition, like, you know, oh, will they trouble our relationship with NATO or the European Union and so on? Uh, but but actually Maloney has, like, moved very strongly to sort of shut down those kinds of things. But I think the specifically, like, anti-fascist thing has, has really no um, purchase on uh, right-wing candidates and politicians or really uh, among their voters to give a... Um, an illustration of this, we were at the um, uh, the final rally before the election of the right wing parties in in Rome. So it was Fratelli, so it's Milani, Salvini, and Berlusconi spoke, and uh, Lupi is very minor uh, fourth ally, and we we actually got chatting before the uh, before the rally to some of the people who were running the Forza Italia store, like Berlusconi's party, mm. and you know we asked like what they thought of um, Giorgia Milani. And they they basically said, oh, she's like strong, you know, like a strong woman and she's like, you know, leading them and, you know, they'll hope to get their own good percentage through the coalition. But, you know, they were basically like totally uncritical of, of her, you know. They accepted fully their like subordinate role. But then they were like, oh, you know, what about that Liz Truss? She's a bit militant, isn't she? Like, you know, like wants a really hard Brexit and, and this kind of thing. And, and, and so, you know, it seemed a bit like... Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think like because they don't see it as if like Meloni is going to like explode Italy's relationship with the European Union. Then I think they they frankly don't really uh, don't really care about the, the the sort of past or even the the racism of of her party. As you say, the right coalition hasn't won the supermajority of of two thirds of of the seats in the Senate and the lower house that would have allowed it to reform the constitution. Does that park the question of constitutional reform for now, or, or do you think they might seek a referendum? And if so, what designs do they have on the post-war constitution exactly? Well, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't kill the possibility of constitutional change. The, the two-thirds majority would have allowed them to change the constitution without referendums. 
Um, so that puts up a higher bar to any change they'd be able to, or they'd seek to pursue. One of the changes they propose, which opinion polls say is very popular and has a certain momentum behind it, is the idea of changing Italy from a system very heavily focused on parliament and parties uh, to having a directly elected president, uh, which Italy doesn't now have. So I think like that kind of change is designed to make the executive stronger, to overcome in some way the kind of institutional legacy of the sort of post-war anti-fascist parties, which were very, you know, the idea of democracy was very much focused on like mass parties, very rooted in society. Uh, And this model obviously points towards both sort of stronger executive plus a more sort of leader-centric and sort of media campaign vehicle type version of of, uh, elections. Uh, of course, it's true that part of the reason why that's popular is because, firstly, that process has already happened to some extent anyway, because the parties have much weaker social bases than they used to, which is also why we have these sudden upsurges and crashes of support, which weren't typical in the post-war period. Uh, but also, as uh, has to be said, there's a certain authoritarian and sort of decisionist spirit which comes from the fact that Italy has uh, had you know several decades of economic stagnation so the idea of outsiders who will come into the political realm you know the great new leader who will break Italy out of its uh, impasse is very common across all parts of the political spectrum so in fact not only have we seen you know Milani and then previously like Matteo Salvini on sort of the far right becoming these phenomena but also if we think of Mario Draghi himself or even uh, Matteo Renzi in the mid 2010s, uh, as as figures who like centrist and centre left forces kind of looked to a very sort of presidential style figure. Uh, so so in that sense, it, it's become a, a more normal way of talking about and conceiving politics. And this is what's believed to be necessary to break Italy out of its very long standing economic malaise. Yeah, because uh, so it's partly partly the idea of as I say, kind of decisionism, uh, overcoming old bureaucracies and so on. It's like a very demagogic conception of what the problem is, right? It's like we just need to like break through the the structures that are holding us back uh, and which is parties and a parliament that, you know, elects like governments with like opposite political coloration. So, so it's part of the appeal of the, of the idea and, the, the re, you know, the reason why it can gain traction is precisely because like, well, Millions of people don't feel that they are able to sort of force a change of course. Uh, and, you know, that's refracted in different ways through different political cultures, uh, but isn't only limited to the far right. Uh, and in fact, the, the centrist block I mentioned earlier, the people like um, Renzi and his finance minister, Kalenda, could plausibly uh, also support this kind of reform to a presidentialist uh, model. So I think I think the 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 idea of the outsider, the the breakthrough, and so on, actually conforms to a quite uh, impoverished vision of democracy, which which reflects the decline of you know, parties that are rooted in society. As I said before, is that also related to the way that one hears both Italians and also Northern Europeans talk about Italy in in a way that seeks to sort of pathologize the national character? almost positing Italy as this kind of problem child that needs some kind of authoritarian figure who will sort of break it and put it on the right course. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there is this kind of very um, patronising and cliched uh, idea of 
of Italy as this like I mean I I, I find uh, it's something I kind of uh, argue against in my in my previous book first they took Rome which is this kind of idea of Italy as kind of like eternal and unchanging and its politics seem kind of chaotic yet at the same time the like national soul always remains the same I think it's a quite exoticizing idea uh, but it's also something that has a strong reflection within Italy itself um, particularly because in the early 1990s when there was a, a big uh, shift in the uh, in fact a seismic change in the political system in Italy in the early 1990s like the end of the Cold War the demise of the Communist Party, but also of the Christian Democrat and Socialist parties uh, in the corruption uh, scandal, which became known as, as Tangentopoli, uh, Bribesville. So it's kind of like the end of the Cold War, the collapse of those parties, European integration, you know, the Maastricht Treaty in 1992. So it created this big wave of this like idea that Italy was going to leave its past behind and become like a normal country. And that was actually an idea that was kind of shared across quite a large space of the political spectrum from like liberal left to like parties like the the Lega and the MSI. Uh, And actually even a a theme which in a very contradictory way was also taken up by by Berlusconi. So it's this idea that Italy is like steeped in this old way of communists and Christian Democrats. But now now we're going to become like a modern liberal uh, free market country. And like that course has been pursued very doggedly by by all governments mm. since then uh, and has had very poor results in terms of uh, even at the level of such an indicator as gdp growth uh, italy has lower gdp inflation adjusted now than it did in 1999 uh, but also things like falling wages uh, and then of course we also see phenomena like a massive drop off in the number of italians who who vote and so on so i think one of the weirdnesses of italian politics is we see the kind of continual reproposition of the very ideas that have already failed but in new guises and one of the the things that interesting about fratelli d'italia as well is it's actually a party which advocates uh, quite radical free market economics uh, so, so yeah, this like we need to get out of the culture of like what's called in Italy assistenzialismo, like hand you know handouts, and instead we need to like re-energize the economy by stripping back regulation and tax cuts, uh, and this kind of thing. So, so yeah, we see this kind of eternal proposition of of this kind of this kind of idea, and it also has a certain reflection even actually in the kind of there's a certain kind of right wing uh, commentary which consists of saying like. We need a a normal right. We need like a, a real Italian conservative party such mm-hmm. as has never existed. And some of the tradition of, of sort of 1990s, 2000s post-fascism is an attempt actually to create such a party, but with very many uh, contradictions. You know, like the idea of creating like an Italian version of the US uh, Republican Party. And of course, you could say in some senses, uh, Fratelli d'Italia has succeeded in creating something like the US Republican Party, also because the UN, US Republican Party is full of fascists and conspiracy theorists. Mm, yeah. I think I interrupted you, David, as you were about to comment more on, on, on the revisions they might want to make to the constitution. Yeah. So another another aspect of the constitutional change is that in Italy, the constitution is very much seen as the product of the resistance. 
Uh, it was written uh, in 1946 and 1947 by the parties who had been most prominent in the resistance, uh, notably the Christian Democrats, but also the socialists and communists. And even in post-war decades when like communists were never like in the national government, but they very much saw the constitution as part of their own legacy and success. In fact, I think you could say almost it's almost comparable to like the way that the Labour Party in Britain would see the NHS as like a kind of permanent mark it has left on politics. Mm. Um, so, so the constitution also includes certain like kind of and uh, sort of social language, but also a specific uh, ban on the reconstitution of the fascist uh, party. This actually has been used against certain groups, but was never used to like break up the main uh, post-war neo-fascist party. And I think there's this kind of deep-seated dislike of the constitution within uh, Fratelli d'Italia and that political tradition, but which really like uh, seeks to rewrite it in a way that makes it like much less uh, specifically anti-fascist, and even to integrate like anti-communist uh, elements. So we've seen before Fratelli d'Italia have proposed constitutional amendments which would change a uh, existing provision which uh, bans Holocaust denial to and decriminalizes Holocaust denial uh, to also criminalize uh, so-called uh, minimization of the killings of Italians by Yugoslav partisans at the end of World War II. Uh, and another another strand of this is the suggestion that it could include a criminalization of apologism for communist totalitarianism and uh, Islamic extremism. A theme common to Eastern European politics of the far right. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I mean, countries like, uh, well, I mean, Hungary is a notable case in point, this kind of quite catch-all uh, legislation because of because of course the next step is then to to, to label basically all kinds of left-wing and even broadly progressive politics and movements as like sort of communist so i mean of course there's a, a big question is whether you know how long will this government last and will it either you know i, I think it's not necessarily the case that like oh well it will be faced with a big crisis so therefore it won't focus on this stuff in fact in a sense i think that in in order to like harden up its own uh, newly acquired base it would make a lot of sense for fratelli d'italia to obsess about these kind of issues also because of course they don't really cost any you know they, they don't cost any money and they don't really trouble italy's international position which is probably the thing they're most uh, concerned to uh, to protect so in the sense of you know, remaining like a stable uh, gov governing force so i think uh, you know already in regions controlled by uh, the the far right parties we've actually already seen some of this stuff kind of pushed already particularly the thing i mentioned about the uh, the uh, the denial of the uh, killings by uh, yugoslav partisans which in the uh, in the sort of memory culture of the italian far right are kind of like it's like as if it was like their own version of the Holocaust, and they actually very often put the things directly on the same uh, footing as as examples of like ethnic uh, cleansing. Going back to the poor showing for the Lega, it's being reported that senior figures within the party are now gunning for Matteo Salvini and would like to see him replaced. Does that seem likely to happen in your opinion? And if not, how do you think he'll respond to being a junior partner in the new government? After all, his macho posturing doesn't seem particularly well suited to following someone else's line. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the the Lega is a party that has 
had some very severe ups and downs uh, before in terms of, you know, there've been previous elections in which it lost like more than half its vote and then recovered. And part of the reason is that the Lega, uh, you know, until 2013, under its original leader, Umberto Bossi, was like very much a northern regionalist party, at some points even pushing for, for independence. But you know, it, it had these strongholds of regional governments, including some of the most important, certainly economically important regions in Italy. Also, you know, for example, Lombardy, the region of Milan, which has like a quarter of Italian uh, GDP and is also easily the largest region by population. Or, for example, Veneto, uh, the region of Venice, uh, where the, the Lega has enormous uh, hegemony in regional government. And uh, one of the contradictions uh, journalists pointed out on um, when we were on election night at the, uh, the indeed at the five star uh, media event was that in Veneto, which is probably like the single strongest Lega heart, uh, heartland historically, it came third place with I think fourteen or fifteen percent of the vote. Yet, if there was a regional election there tomorrow, Luca Zaya, its governor, would probably win sixty five or seventy percent of the vote. So you have these figures in the Lega who are these regional governors who went along with Salvini when he said, you know, in 2013, 2014, you know, let's take the party national, let's start organising in central southern Italy, uh, which I hadn't done before, basically because of Berlusconi's role in both the uh, the Mario Monti technocratic government, 2011 to 13, which he supported, and then his banning from public office for tax fraud. Uh, the Berlusconi's party in that moment was very weak, and the Lega tried to over, and indeed successfully overtook it as the like, as a national right-wing party. So it became more nationalist, stopped talking about hating Southerners quite so much, uh, became more focused on hating foreign immigrants and became more focused on Salvini personally. And, you know, for several years that enjoyed a, a, a general and long uh, success. And this actually also allowed um, a, a strange phenomenon of kind of like even northern-based Lega representatives, activists, uh, becoming MPs and senators even for southern Italian regions, uh, and you know, a phenomenon that was, mm. at the time was compared to carpet bagging. Um, so, and you know, now that isn't working now because the Lega is you know on nine percent. So you know, nine percent in the history of the Lega, you know, that's not the worst result it's had by any stretch. But you know, it's also a failure of Salvini's project. So I think like. Now it's quite likely that while he'll be in Meloni's coalition, he has to find some sort of way to differentiate himself and destabilise her if he's going to remain the, the Lega uh, leader. One of the big themes of this campaign was that the Lega, and particularly Salvini, is much more strongly linked to Vladimir Putin and his party than Fratelli d'Italia is. Mm. Like the Lega has like a formal alliance with United Russia, which is the main pro-Putin party in Russia. So while Salvini like supports uh, or you know, says he he supports you know the sanctions and arms to Ukraine and so on, uh, he even visited Moscow during the war, funded by the Russian uh, embassy in Italy, on a you know sort of peace mission. So so what's quite odd uh, is that I think like in broad perception. 
Salvini is the more destabilizing force in the government rather than like Meloni or her own ministers going to do something extreme, and particularly because of the centrality of the of the Russia uh, issue. Uh, still, I think there are certainly problems also for Meloni in terms of you know whether her voters you know are willing to put up with. The, the effects of the of the sanctions and there's there are uh, I think in Italy much more than in uh, for example Britain there's a lot more hearing for the idea that Italy should basically stop supporting Ukraine and Italy should abandon the sanctions also because it's like Italy's not a very big player anyway so it, it, it there's less of the idea that it's kind of incumbent on it to be an important factor in like resolving the situation and there's more of an idea of like you know why does this concern us uh which i think certainly is like something which the Lega in in a certain way also uh gives, gives voice to like salvini says stuff like yes to the sanctions but uh the eu should like pay us to make sure it doesn't impact us so i think that that's, that's certainly a kind of lot uh, there's an element of tension in in the Lega's relationship to the government on the history of Fratelli d'Italia, so the party was only founded in 2012, but as you, as you say, they're directly descended from the MSI, the Italian social movement, the neo-fascist party founded in 1946 by former fascist veterans of the Italian Social Republic, the rump state that ruled parts of northern and, and central Italy under Benito Mussolini from uh, 1943 until 1945. Can you talk about the history of the MSI and how tight or otherwise is the connection between Fratelli d'Italia and, and the MSI? You're right that the MSI is a party which very specifically draws its identity and leadership from the uh, Italian Social Republic, which is often known as the Salò uh, Republic. Uh, the, the Ministry of Popular Culture was based in Salò, so a lot of the messages you know, it's information coming from its official organs would come from Salah, so that's why it's called the Salah Republic. And the Under Secretary of State for the Ministry of Popular Culture was Giorgio Almirante. And Almirante was the most important post war leader of the MSI, uh, along with others. So, for example, Pino Romualdi or uh, Arturo Michelini. But the leadership of the MSI was made up of cadres from the Solo Republic. And in fact, at first, the MSI didn't allow to join the party uh, the people who had uh, supported the palace coup against Mussolini in uh, July 1943. So mm. like when the monarchy split with Mussolini. So just the bitter enders. Yeah, people who'd fought to the bitter end. And I think that's also quite interesting in terms of its political culture in the sense that, so the party was created at the end of 1946, you know, there were various parties that hadn't belonged to the resistance, including notably monarchists, and also a, a quite strange party which called itself anti-anti-fascist, called Luomo Qualunque, which was a kind of um, so-called anti-ideological party, which expressed a kind of cynicism towards the new order, and which did integrate a lot of uh, former fascists. Um, but the, the MSI from the outset was had two real characteristics, one of which, uh, which also set it apart from other fascist groups. So one of which was that it um, was totally based on the identity of Salon, and the other was, was it basically was committed to being an electoral party and gaining a foothold for itself 
in the republic's institutions. So even though it rejected the anti-fascist republic kind of on principle, it you know, ran in elections, it got six uh, MPs in the first uh, general election in 1948, and through the, the period up to the 1980s, it remained, let's say, like the fourth or fifth or sixth largest party in Italy, normally with something between, like, say, five and eight percent of the vote. It made attempts to try and join national governments at certain points. Uh, for instance, in 1960, uh, there was a Christian Democrat government which relied on its sort of votes in Parliament to have, you know, in confidence votes, but which was very quickly brought down by a very significant uh, anti-fascist mobilisation, including major strikes. Uh, and, and that was actually a very important moment in the, in the sort of origins of the kind of 1960s new left and the revival of the labour movement. So the MSI was always kind of a, a party that was very defined by the fact that its leadership group and cadres nurtured this memory of Salon. That had different political trends within it, also reflecting the kind of diversity of fascism itself. So, for example, uh, some fascists, like those led by Pino Rauti, would say that the Salon Republic was the fullest incarnation of fascism because it was the moment it broke with the monarchy, with the church, and when it issued at least its proclamations, intending on like socialising the economy, uh, imposing a more uh, total like state control, if you will, its most uh, totalitarian phase. Rauti, though, was also influenced by thinkers like Julius Evola, who um, had a much more um, traditionalist and anti-modernist uh, conception of fascism. Uh, then there were sort of certain accounts of the Solo experience which very much focused on celebrating its hopelessness, uh, the fact that they had fought to the bitter end even knowing they were going to lose, and often in sort of party culture, this would be shown as a kind of si sign of supreme like patriotism and, and sacrifice, and even painted as sort of non-ideological, uh, non-political. Uh, of course, that itself being a, a typical motif of of fascist culture is to is to claim to stand above like ideology. So, you know, a, a classic MSI way of talking about the resistance would be to say the resistance fought for una fazione a faction, whereas we fought for la nazione, uh, the, 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 the whole nation. But despite this very formative experience, which very much like bound its cadres together, the MSI also wasn't totally isolated from other parties, and at different points did uh, make alliances with, uh, for instance, with monarchist parties, uh, with other nationalist forces, and and uh, particularly in the in the nineteen seventies, tried to form a sort of a so-called uh, combined anti-communist front, uh, stretching from kind of basically monarchists and the kind of. Uh, old generals who were involved in, in sort of military plots to, to prevent the left from reaching power, all the way to people who call themselves left fascists, who would call themselves anti-bourgeois, anti-capitalist, and who uh, had their own kind of, um, sort of post-68 idea of, uh, of um, sort of profound reordering of society. So in a way, it was a very composite party, but which also had a strong disposition to seek alliances with other conservative forces against communism. So we see this also, I did an interview recently with uh, Gregorio Sorgonin, uh, a historian of the MSI for, uh, for Jacobin magazine, 
where he kind of talks about, you know, while the party calls itself like social and it has these kind of like these certain kind of anti-systemic elements, it's also a party that, you know, supported things like the the military dictatorships in Greece and Spain and Portugal, uh, which are obviously very like militaristic and, and religiously conservative. Uh, and indeed, a party which supported the the uh, the coup d'état in Chile in 1973, uh, saying that you know its commitment to democracy only went so far as communists weren't going to seize power, uh, and of course, uh, part of that worldview included saying that, like, say, someone like Salvador Allende, uh, you know, a democratic and reformist socialist, was in fact a totalitarian regime in in preparation. Um, so, you know, this is a party that had a very weak uh, and instrumental commitment to the electoral process. In 1987, Gianfranco Fini became the party leader, and he was the kind of protege of the long-standing leader, Almirante. And then uh, he was briefly kicked out, and then he came back again as leader in uh, 1991. And from that point, he brought the party into a kind of post-Cold War world, but also one in which the leaders of the party were starting to be people who hadn't uh, fought for the Slow Republic. You know, Fini, uh, I can't remember his exact age, but I think he was 36 when he took over the leadership for the first time in the end of the 80s. So, uh, you know, people who hadn't directly lived through fascism and whose political culture was much more shaped by the kind of post-68 world. Uh, And then if we think, say, Giorgia Milani, you know, she joined the MSI uh, aged 15 in 1992. So let's say at the time she joined, there would have been a lot of veterans of Salah uh, knocking around, people who were proud of fighting for Nazi Germany against the partisans. But they were beginning to give up the leadership role to a a newer uh, generation. Uh, In 1994, Berlusconi welcomed the MSI into his coalition, his right-wing coalition, which he called a union of all moderates. And, uh, you know, he played a very important role in legitimising the party as part of the uh, broad and mainstream right. Uh, in fact, even at the time, the Lega was much more reticent about allying with neo-fascists than uh, Berlusconi had been. And and Fini began, you know, after that first government, he began a kind of process of somehow shifting the party's image to be not just a party of fascists, but also one that allied with liberals and conservatives and could be part of a broader sort of right-wing bloc. So still including some fascists and fascist reference points, and particularly uh, defending the party's post-war tradition, but then somehow delimiting that from the kind of criminality of the Mussolini regime and particularly the Holocaust. Today's uh, Fratelli d'Italia stands in a quite contradictory uh, relation to that because, as you said, Fratelli d'Italia was founded in 2012 uh, and partly as a rejection of what Fini had done. If you look at Milani's interventions from the early years of the party's existence, uh, she says that, you know, by making it a sort of broad, uh, generically centre-right party, and indeed one which eventually integrated, uh, so merged into Berlusconi's own, uh, that he had destroyed the party tradition, that he'd rejected the MSI, uh, that he'd become, as she put it, uh, quite literally, a good luck charm for the Freemasons and high finance. Um, you know, she she basically accused him of destroying the MSI tradition, and the the opening years of Fratelli d'Italia were were built on reclaiming that. The 
And if you look at you know, Milani's comments about people like um, Giorgio Almirante, the historic leader, are absolutely glowing and positive. In her memoir, she refers to the 70-year tradition of her party, obviously referring to the MSI created in 1946. Um, but so the, the kind of contradiction there is is like, oh, you know, she was interviewed for The Spectator recently. She said that the, the MSI flame, which appears in her party flag, doesn't represent um, fascism or Mussolini, but the tradition of the democratic right uh, after 1945 but by that she specifically means the MSI and the idea really is that you know they were an anti-communist party that was maligned and hated by an anti-fascist republic the fact that it like suppressed the the party as, as they say of course it didn't uh, but the, the the fact that the party was like marginal and unable to you know, be a real factor in national politics, they have a huge like victim complex about this. So now, really, what they try and do is kind of say, like, well, fascism is all in the past. That's all just like Mussolini. We condemned the Holocaust already. You know, what do you want from us more? But at the same time, they they defend the legacy of a party which actually explicitly did call itself fascists. Uh, you know. Giorgio Almirante referred to the MSI as the party of fascists in a democracy. And I think that, that's an accurate description of what it, what it is. A, a typical trait of uh, Italian media discussion of this problem is kind of to say, like, well, you know, if they're, you know, also when they're talking about more openly fascist or, uh, groups, like, for example, Casa Pound, the mm. Rome so- Social Centre, or um, Roberto Fiore's uh, Forza Nuova, uh, another small and very militant uh, and even violent uh, neo-fascist group, it's kind of like, well, they can say what they like and they can be fascists as long as they're not violent. So so I think, like, the idea of, like, say, people who are open fascists taking part in, like, say, TV debates and so on is actually very normal in in, in Italy and, and not something that this is kind of called on Sanitaire uh, against. And presumably violence carried out by the Italian state under under the auspices of uh, Fratelli d'Italia, that doesn't count. They're talking s- strictly about street violence of the kind that characterised fascism in the in the 20th century. Yes, uh, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, I mean, the, the in fact, one of Milani's promises uh, is to implement a naval blockade in the Mediterranean, uh, which, you know, one might question how effectively they'll be able to impose that in full. But uh, insofar as they do indeed try, then that could clearly uh, involve uh, the Italian Navy uh, deliberately sinking migrant rescue boats, uh, which could kill hundreds or thousands of people. Uh, and I think, like, you know, that isn't something that particularly troubles certainly uh, figures on the on the so-called centre-right of Italian politics. I will just add that I don't think uh, it makes much sense to call centre-right a coalition. Uh, only one in six voters belongs to the supposedly moderate force in, in the uh, coalition, which is led by the <laughs> repeatedly convicted associate of mafiosi and fascists, Silvio Berlusconi. So I, I, th- I think the thing is, is because the narrative of the moderation of the party, its normalisation is so strong, after all, the party did have ministers even in Berlusconi's governments. So it's, you know, it's not like they like overthrew Italian democracy. There was a norm erosion and there was a, a promotion of, of fascist personnel and ideas. Uh, and so on, but also not entirely by the party alone. So, you know, I mean, I think the idea is, like, because they are part of the system now, 
then even when we see uh, examples of their own members uh, associating with with more like neo-Nazi or militant groups, or when we see like personnel from further right uh, extra parliamentary groups being recycled as like say council candidates and so on, you know when centre left press or left wing press try and talk about these uh, these things, they're always just accused of trying to smear Fratelli d'Italia, like you know. It's like, oh, well, that's all in the past. Like, oh, are you really saying a party with 25% is uh, neo-fascist? So, I mean... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, 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 Playing it, for, into ideas some... of sort of personal redemption. That, you know, you could, parties just like people should be allowed to, you know, move on if they've done the, done the right thing since or something like that. Yeah, it's a little like that. Although at the same time, it also relies on a very gross uh, kind of amnesia uh, whereby like, um, where, where like, you know, even when there are these exposés, even when they force, like, resignations, they're always, like, very quickly uh, forgotten about. Mm. Uh, so, like, a good case in point is uh, in October last year, there was a um, there was a, a TV investigative journalist uh, exposed the fact that the leader of the Fratelli d'Italia group in the European Parliament basically hung around with uh, neo-fascists in Milan that in private he, like, gave Roman salutes and made anti-Semitic jokes. From the documentary, it would seem that they uh, allegedly uh, sought illicit campaign donations from the undercover journalist. And so, you know, the the, the person in question, Carlo Fidanza, uh, who's, who was the leader in the European Parliament, you know, he, he, he declared that he was suspending himself from his own role, uh, you know, put, stepping back from his duties. But then it's like, only a few weeks later, he turned up in uh, Miami uh, with an MEP from Vox, the Spanish uh, far-right party, and they met the deputy governor of Florida. They spoke at a conference together with Ron DeSantis, and they even planned to go together to Cuba to take part in the anti-government protests, although they failed to get visas to uh, get to Havana. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, it was like he was like very like strongly condemned and shamed but then it was like a few weeks later, it was like nothing had happened. So, so yeah, I think, and and you know, even in the in in the the recent campaign, I think it was very uh, uh, telling how like Meloni was able to do like very polarizing and shocking interventions. For instance, posting a yeah, this doesn't belong to the realm of of violence per se, but like you know, she she posted a video of a of a Ukrainian woman being raped by a, a, an immigrant from Guinea and, you know, saying, like, this is, like, the effect of immigration. And then the social media platforms took the video down uh, and there was a kind of attempt by the other, by the kind of centre-left parties and so on, to, like, you know, shame her for this outrageous behaviour, also because the victim complained uh, about the video being circulated. And then Meloni kind of both kept the story running in her own speeches saying like she's being silenced the left don't want to talk about immigration and so on but then at the same time had this kind of laudatory media narrative of well isn't she showing her moderation isn't she growing up isn't she uh, you know the plucky 15 year old girl who walked into a neo-fascist youth section and now she's like basically a girl boss so I think it's very. Um, That's a narrative, of course, that internationally has been helped by Hillary Clinton, of course, who partially welcomed uh, Maloney's uh, success. Yeah, so I, I think 
uh, uh, Clinton's uh, intervention was interesting in the sense that my my first reaction was to think, well, uh, you know, maybe Hillary Clinton was asked to, co- you know, she was in Venice uh, and she was asked by a journalist to comment on Milani, and she kind of said, oh, well, I don't really know about her, but you know, it's a good step forward for a woman to be elected, then she should be judged on her record like a man. Mm. So at first I thought, oh, well, maybe she was surprised by the question, didn't really know. So she gave a kind of like slightly awkward answer, which like actually is quite a stupid thing to say and shows the hollowness of that kind of representational politics. But you know, maybe she was just caught in the back foot. But then I realized that actually that was the third interview she'd done in uh, Italy. And in the first one, she had just replied that she didn't want to comment. And then in the second one, she made a a step in the direction and then in the third one she actually said she basically said like uh, uh, not exactly an endorsement but let's say like a, a sort of normalization of her as a figure you know let's see what let's see what her record is but of course also that's kind of projecting it to like let's see what her record is once she's already elected so without passing any kind of judgment on all the very well-documented things she's said, promoting, for instance, great replacement theory, the accusation that George Soros is planning, is planning the ethnic substitution of Europeans by Africans and Muslims, uh, her attacks on so-called LGBT lobbies, her claim that the left wants to destroy Western civilization while also acting the victim when people call her a fascist. So I think, like, you know, maybe there's a certain kind of uh, perception, I think, and and actually, it's it, it's something I, I I talked about in my um, my article uh, uh, I wrote about her for, for the New York Times a couple of months ago, which I, I think really the success is in putting together both the insistence that she's not going to upset Italy's place in in, international institutions, you know, it's not going to tumble out of the euro, it's not going to leave NATO or even s- stop supporting Ukraine. But at the same time, it's also going to wage this kind of war against migrants, the left, so-called lobbies, uh, imaginary globalists, and, and so on. I th- so I think she has the political space to do that, as so- as long as she you know, portrays her basic allegiance to the Western alliance. And, and I think the contrast there I, I'd make with uh, Marine Le Pen is that you know I think it's unimaginable that Hillary Clinton would say that it would be good for Marine Le Pen to win an election, or even to say the fact she's a woman is good, but then that should be criticised for other reasons. I think that Meloni is seen as a fundamentally less destabilising figure for NATO and the European Union. Uh, Partly, of course, that's because Italy itself is so weak within the sort of power dynamics of the EU that it would be very hard for it to mount any kind of confrontation. Whereas I think like Le Pen and France, uh, even, even aside from her like ideological influences, I think it's that uh, France has a fundamentally greater capacity to shift like Europe-wide power dynamics and to, and to disrupt uh, the Western alliance, as indeed even a certain uh, Gaullist tradition uh, did partially do uh, in the 1960s. So, so I think like the the the, uh, the the kind of idea that, and I think this is also the reason why there's this kind of idea that Milani, you know, I I would say that. I feel a bit like in the build-up to the election, I think that there is, has been less alarmism in international media over Milani than there was over Lega and Five Star in 2018. Partly it's because the, the overall sent, you know, this whole kind of like, oh, populist moment or whatever kind of discourse has died down. But also it's because I think that her allegiance to those 
institutions is is probably less uh, less a less of a concern to uh, like mainstream center right politicians in other Western countries. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune Magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.